Let's go to the Lord once again and ask for his spirit to give us all that we need to give our attention and our understanding to his word. Our Father and our God, we rejoice in your good work for us, in us and among us, your preservation of your people. We ask now as we open your word that you would use this as, as a means of strengthening us, of preserving us, of calling us back to you, that you would use this as a means this morning of calling those who are yet in darkness out of that darkness and into the marvelous light of your own Son. We pray particularly for the young people among us, our own children, that you would cause them to hear and believe the word of life that you've given to us, and especially the word that you are speaking to us this day that you will cause us to see ourselves more clearly, that you would cause us to see the exceeding mercy and glory of Christ more clearly. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Take your, your Bibles once again as, you, as you're being seated, and turn with me to, to Judges chapter 11. We're going to cover, you know, as, as we, we're here in the middle of the, this narrative of, of Jephthah, and two weeks ago, I sort of split this narrative with bookends on either side with the so-called minor judges. We noted at the time they were minor not because of their insignificance, but minor because we just not as much is written of them. We don't know as much about them. And then we get to somebody like Jephthah, and we have a lot of detail. There's still questions that we might have that are not answered, but we find much more information about Jephthah. So we've broken this into two parts. We looked last week at it just kind of what, what happened in Jephthah's background? And today we look at the way that God used Jephthah to deliver his people. As you come into our, our neighborhood, we were coming in Wednesday evening. We'd had dinner with a church, church family, and we're coming home, and there's a sort of a moderately sharp curve as you come in. And the county has scored the pavement over the years and done a number of things, and, and I, I really can't figure out why this is such a problem to navigate, but the poor people who own the fence, it's a three-rail, split-rail split fence along the side, have had to replace that section who knows how many times. And, and at one point, a year or so ago, they put up a sign that says, slow down. Now, it's on the other side of the curve, which I'm not sure why that makes sense, but it's, there's a sign that says, slow down. As we came home Wednesday night... There are skid marks and tracks leading up to this mangled and destroyed and twisted sign. Clearly, someone didn't get the message. But it, and, and as we're driving, Andrew made the observation. He said, Dad, that's kind of a sermon illustration, or at least a meme. I went, well, yeah, you're right. It's exactly right. And as I pondered the, the narrative we have with Jephthah, I think we need to think of Jephthah in a similar way. Jephthah is like this mangled up street sign with skid marks leading up to him. He is, in a sense, a living parable. He is, in a sense, a one-man meme. I don't want to trivialize this by calling it that, but I want to draw your attention to something, a concept with which we're all familiar. You have this picture in your mind, and maybe there's a caption on it, and it points to something that's much bigger than what's contained just in the picture. Jephthah is that way. That's the title of the sermon, Jephthah, a living parable. Now remember that the book of Judges is likely, was likely written as an apologetic in favor of a righteous kingdom, specifically the Davidic kingdom, and as a polemic against unrighteous kings and unrighteous rulers. And in, in the person of Jephthah, we have a little bit of both. We have Jephthah as a type of David. I mean, he was the outcast. He found himself among unsavory fellows, and, and ultimately the Lord used him to deliver his people from mighty enemies. But at his worst, Jephthah reminds us instead of David of Saul, making rash vows, exploiting his anger upon his people. Jephthah is a living parable. Or if you prefer, Jephthah is a sermon in real life. In the Jephthah narrative, we observe that the greatest enemy that Israel faces is herself. Jephthah reminds us that the greatest enemy of all is internal. And to a significant degree, Jephthah stands as, as a sense of a microcosm, this one-man parable of sorts, of all that has become wrong with Israel. Jephthah represents, in one person, 
all of Israel and what is wrong with Israel. Like Israel, Jephthah has a good grasp of history and, and understands, looking backwards, the Lord's mighty hand. But also like Israel, Jephthah provokes the very name of God. We're going to see that in the narrative. Jephthah provokes the very name of God. And as we're going to see, in the, as the rest of the book of Judges unfolds, the greatest enemy that Israel faces is Israel. In fact, the motif, the theme of civil war in Israel becomes much more prominent beginning with the Jephthah narrative. And it represents the deadly peril of unrepentant, indwelling sin among God's people. So I'm going to divide the text into three sections. We're going to look at at chapter 11, verse 12, and we're going to go all the way down to verse 7 of chapter 12. So that that will complete the Jephthah narrative. And I'm going to divide this into three sections. The first one is, is the remainder of chapter 11. And it's an... Jephthah makes a correct appeal to God's providence. So if you're taking notes, that's the first subject. First heading is Jephthah makes a correct appeal to God's providence. But we're also going to see he makes a tragic appeal to God's name. And lastly, we'll see that he makes a disastrous appeal to pride. So we have an appeal to God's providence, correctly. We have an appeal to God's name, tragically. And we have an appeal to pride, disastrously. So let's read the text. I'm not going to read all of that first section, beginning in verse 12. I'm going to read a portion of this, and then we'll cover, we'll come back. He's giving a history lesson, and we'll come back and and highlight that. Beginning in chapter 11, verse 12. Hear now the word of God. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel on coming out of Egypt took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Now for the sake of time, I'm going to skip down to verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you give me, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering." So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Eror to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter, And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. 
She had never known a man, and it became custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites, Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my peoples had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim, and the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to them, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said, No, they said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. The primary setting for this section is the Ammonites coming up against Israel. We saw this last week. Jephthah was was an outcast. He had been disinherited by his brothers. He was living in the land of Tob among some unsavory fellows, and the Gileadites, under the burden of the oppression of the Ammonites, went and recruited uh, Jephthah because he was a mighty warrior. And there was this, we saw this negotiation, and Jephthah got them to agree not only to make him commander of their army, but to make him head over all of them if he were successful in delivering them from the Ammonites. So that's the setting. Now Jephthah has taken command of the army. And the war with the Ammonites begins with a war of words. That's what we get in this first section. And Jephthah answers with a correct appeal to history. Jephthah's appeal to God's providential rule of all of history. And at least on the surface, the the Ammonites are preparing to attack Israel because the king of the Ammonites said, you've stolen our land. So that's really what the issue is about. You think, well, why are two people fighting? Why are two groups going to war? Well, this was about land. And to kind of give you a mental orientation to what's going on, and you may find it helpful to look at one of the maps in the back of, of your Bible, You have the the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel, and you have almost on a direct north and south line, the Jordan River that runs down into the Dead Sea. There are two boundaries that are mentioned here in the text that I read. You have the the Jabbok River in the north, which is roughly halfway up between the the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, and that, that river runs roughly east to west. Well, then on the bottom end, coming out, kind of feeding into the northern tip of the Dead Sea, is the Arnon River. And so what were the disputed area is that area between the Jabbok River and the Arnon River east of the Jordan. So it's the territory of Gad and Reuben. And of course, Manasseh has territory on that east side. Gilead is on that east side of the river. So all that we see in this initial setting is, is a dispute of territory on the east side of the Jordan River. They come to Japheth and said, can you help us? Now, Japheth responds, this is sort of messengers going back and forth. So this was diplomatic communique going back and forth between Jephthah, now acting as commander of all the Gileadites, representing Israel, and the king of Ammon. And Jephthah essentially says to the king of the Ammonites, Ammonites, "Let let me help you get your history straight. Here's a dispute. You're making an accusation that we took your land, this this strip of land that's roughly 50 miles from top to bottom, and you're accusing us of having taken that. Let me help you get your facts correct. He's going to argue that God's past dealings with his people have a relevance up to this very present moment. Do you think about history that way? 
Do you self-consciously think about God's previous activity having immediate direct relevance to what's going on right now? And not only as God has caused nations to rise and fall, but in your own personal history. As you look back on your life, what has happened to you and and how God has moved in in your circumstances in particular ways, do you think self-consciously that those things have immediate relevance even in the present moment? Especially God's deeds of deliverance and redemption. Do you view those as having particular relevance to you right now in this place and time? Because that's how we ought to view history. So Jephthah goes on to make four main arguments. I'm just going to summarize these very quickly. If if you're taking notes, you can write in your notes. In verses 14 to 18, Jephthah makes this argument. Your facts are wrong. Number one, you've accused us of taking your land. Your, Your facts are wrong. We never actually even entered that land. We came, as we came out of Egypt, our, our fathers asked the king of Moab, for example, may we pass through? And he said, no. So we didn't. We didn't. Again, the, the Arnon River is the northern border of Moab, the southern border of the territory that Israel claims. So that's his first point, is you don't understand what actually happened historically. Number two, he makes the argument theologically that Yahweh did, in fact, give us this land, not because we took it from you. We didn't take it from the Ammonites. We took it from the Amorites. It's a different people. And this is in verses 19 to 24 there in chapter 11. You can go and read that. The land belonged at the time to the Amorites, not the Ammonites. And there was about, a, again, 50 miles long and about a 20-mile stretch, and they ask the king of the Amorites, if they could pass through. And rather than simply saying no, as the king of Moab and others did, he brought his armies out to fight against them. And Jephthah says, the Lord gave them into our hands. We we routed the Amorites. God dispossessed them from the land. And yes, Yahweh gave us that land. And then he says, wouldn't you do the same? If your God, Chemosh, gave you, wouldn't you claim it as your own? Yahweh gave it to us. Now, he's not acknowledging Chemosh as a legitimate god. He's just saying, this is how you would think too. Then his third argument. His third argument is based on the original relationship of this land to Moab. He goes and says, look, are you better than Balak? Because Balak was the king of Moab all the way back then. And he said, he never made a claim. He never made the same claim that you're making that we stole the land. He, he, was, he was satisfied the fact that we stayed north of the Arnon River. He was never worried about that. So why is it that you now think we stole that land? And then fourthly, Jephthah basically argues, why now? All these things that you're saying took place, took place 300 years ago. Why are you just now coming and saying, you know, that's our land. We've been here for 300 years. God has given it to us. We've possessed it. We've lived here peacefully. This has been our land without incident for 300 years. So Jephthah concludes adamantly that neither he nor Israel has wronged the Ammonites. This is what he says in chapter 11, verse 27. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon, But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent him. See, this wasn't really about land after all. This was not a a legitimate dispute. Jephthah conclusively proves from history that the Ammonites claim that his argument wasn't valid. But he's not in the mood to reason, is he? The king of the Ammonites was not willing to accept any of this. And it's a lesson for us too, saints, in every generation... There are wicked men who will ignore history. The plain facts of history will be whitewashed, done away with, and ignored. Both its providential and theological implications will be ignored. God has established providentially boundaries of nations, for example, and there will be those who ignore that and seek to change them at their own whim and their own will. There will be others who ignore the theological implications of God establishing a people in a certain place. And they will seek to make war upon the people of God. And this was one of the very few things that Jephthah got right. Jephthah understood his history. And he applied it carefully and and accurately. Israel needed to to remember her own history in order to remember her God correctly. 
But isn't this true for us as well? There's a lesson here that we need to understand history. We need to be we need to study it. We need to learn it. We need to be able to make reasoned arguments from history. We need to understand God's providential work in history that we can prayerfully and carefully draw conclusions from God's providential work. And we need to be ready to make reasoned arguments from his providential rule of nations and peoples. And and on this note, can, can we dispense with this sort of silly notion that we have church history and we have secular history, that those are not the same thing? Can we do away with, can we purge from our minds the false dichotomy of secular and sacred history? Can we acknowledge that all history is God's history? Whether it explicitly involves his people or not, God is working over every detail in every place and every time among every people in history. And we ought not to think that church history is one category and then the history of nations is something separate, something distinct. That's not true. I mean, all history is God's, and all history is a study in God's providential rule of all things. And Jephthah correctly makes this point. From the least to the greatest, all of history is a story of God ordering all things to accomplish both his creative and his redemptive purposes. And especially, he orders all things for the calling, the preserving and protecting, and the perfecting of his church of the people that God has chosen for his own possession, people that he has called out to himself. I mean, we, we, there needs to be enough with this worldly and carnal idea that history of nations is merely a secular enterprise. All of it is God's design and God's doing. So Jephthah first makes this appeal to history. And, and, he, and he, he takes the Ammonite king to task and says, what you're saying isn't true. Here are the true facts. But then, Jephthah makes this tragic appeal to God's name. And again, think of Jephthah as this one-man parable. He, he, in, in, in his persona, in his actions, he's, he's the mangled-up road sign with skid marks leading up to it, saying, slow down. He had, he had certain things right, but what we find is that he is a, he's a one-man sermon to all of Israel and to all of us of, of what tragically can go wrong and how simply knowing history is not enough. We ought to know history, but to know it and not know Yahweh defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Now, we're told two things here, beginning in verse 29 of chapter 11. We're told two things just prior to the the physical battle commencing. The, The negotiations, the diplomacy, the words didn't work. So now we're going to come to to a, a full, physical, bloody battle. And we're told two things just before the battle commences. One, that the Spirit of the Lord had come upon Jephthah. We're, we're told explicitly by our narrator here that God is at work and that God is, God is, God's hand, his very spirit, is on Jephthah. And secondly, we're told that Jephthah made a foolish vow, a rash vow. And then interestingly, we're told in only the very briefest terms about the battle itself. God gives the Ammonites into the hands of Jephthah. But we're told, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's two verses that describes the entire battle. And, and by the way, I'll address this in a few moments, but if you perceive in the statement here that, there's a, that Jephthah took a vow and then God delivered the people, if you perceive in that a cause and effect relationship, you're going to want to pay very close attention because that's not a correct perception. When you understand how this unfolds, the narrator gives to us very little detail about the actual victory over the Amorites, Ammonites. See, I'm going to confuse that probably again. Ammonites. And, and, and the reason is, the reason there's very little, we see this in verse, chapter 11, and verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Eror to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as abel Karamim with a great blow, so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. I don't know about you, but if I were writing this, if you were writing this, if you were a journalist assigned to this story, and you're going to write about this whole event, 
would you give more than one verse to the destruction of 20 whole cities? And, and the destruction and, and, and the subduing of, of an entire nation? There's, there's, a, there's a theological reason that the narrator does not give us that detail. He wants us to focus on what happens next. He wants us to, to focus on the tragedy that happens at the same time as the victory. The dark cloud of Jephthah's folly eclipses the sun of God's deliverance. In, in a sense, success is swallowed up by sorrow. Jephthah had made a vow that whatever comes out of his house, he would offer up as a burnt offering. And after he comes back triumphantly, his own precious young daughter, that's, that's why there's the rep- repetition of, of her virginity. Let's talk about her age. She's young. She's never been married. And we're told that it's Jephthah's one and only child. And the fact that she's known no man means there is no hope of an heir for Jephthah. There's a tragedy here. Jephthah's a living sermon. He's a living meme, if you will. And here he testifies to all of Israel and to us that to profane the name of the living God is a far greater peril than the Ammonites or any other enemy you might face. To profane the name of God is a deadly and tragic undertaking. The enemy within, Jephthah proves to us, is far more dangerous than the enemy outside. I mean, it's almost as if the narrator says, look, in a single verse, God can dispense with 20 cities of your biggest enemy. But your own profaning of God's name will doom you. It's a lesson for us too, isn't it? It's a sermon for us. Knowing accurately the, the acts and the deeds and the history of God will be of no profit to you, will be no profit to me if we do not know Yahweh himself, if we do not honor his name. See, the rash vow of Jephthah demonstrates that he did not actually know Yahweh. He didn't know his ways. He didn't know his character. And, and we can know the Lord's activity Jephthah knew that. He could, give, he, could give, he could go back 300 years and give a detailed accounting of God's work among the Israelites. Now, I don't know about you, but you probably, you, if, if I ask about what are God's major deliverances of God's people, you could say, well, crushing the, the armies of Pharaoh at the Red Sea. Or you might think about the walls of Jericho. They circle around them seven times. They blow the trumpets and the walls just fall. And God give, and We would remember those. But do you remember the defeat of Sihon, king of the Amorites? How God gave them that that land? I I, I didn't either until I remembered, until I reread this this week. We don't often think about those, and yet Jephthah knew even those events. He knew them well. But the way he responds, number one, the way he makes this vow shows he doesn't know Yahweh's character. And secondly, the way he carries out his vow unlawfully, shows that he did not know God's character. One of the points I sought to press upon us last week as we introduced Jephthah is that when we pursue idolatry, it certainly is a fact that that angers God. But it's more than that. It angers God and also that idolatry reshapes our thinking. We, because we become like what we worship... And because when we worship pagan gods, we, become, we begin to think like pagans. When we worship foreign gods, we begin to think like foreigners. Jephthah is thinking like a pagan here. He's getting ready to go out to battle. The Spirit of God comes on him, and Jephthah thinks, I need to do something to persuade my God to go before me. I need some strong, tangible illustration of my commitment so that God will be obligated, God will be compelled to act on my behalf. Jephthah began to think like a pagan. He, he began to think that Yahweh's character and Yahweh's promises were not enough. He began to think he needed to do something to show God just how serious that he was. He needed to do something to obligate his God to act on his behalf. Saints, that's pagan thinking. That's how the pagan gods operated. That's how their pagan 
Israel's pagan neighbors thought of their gods. And Jephthah is now acting and thinking in the very same way. One commentator says it this way, the vow has broken in at the very center to press for divine help that ironically is already Jephthah's through the spirit of the Lord. The making of the vow is truly an act of unfaithfulness. Jephthah desires to bind God rather than embrace the gift of the spirit. What comes to him freely, he seeks to earn and manipulate. The meaning of his words, then, is doubt, not faith. It is control, not courage. To such a vow, the deity tellingly makes no reply. See, this isn't courage. This is an attempt to control God. This is a pagan way of thinking. What about our prayers? Do we try to negotiate with God? Do we try to offer him something to try to bind him? Lord, I've done this in my marriage. Now aren't you obligated to do this? I've done this with my church. Aren't you obligated now to hear me? I've offered you this. Aren't you obligated now? Jephthah should never have made such a vow. This was was a sinful, unlawful vow to make in the first place. But he compounds his sin by fulfilling the vow. He adds to, he compounds, he multiplies his sin by fulfilling the vow that he should not have made in the first place. Once again, Judges serves as an exercise in sort of compare and contrast between later leaders in Israel, Saul and David. And we find illustrations of this very fact, this very sort of scenario, a rash vow. We have an example of Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, and we have an example of a rash vow with David in 1 Samuel 25, but they're handled in completely different ways. In 1 Samuel 14, Saul makes a rash vow. We're not going to turn there. You can go back and, and, and read this on, on your own, but Saul makes a rash vow. His men were, were, were fighting against their enemies, and he says, cursed be any man who eats before the battle is over. His own son, Jonathan, doesn't know that, doesn't hear that, comes along and eats. And were it not for Saul's men intervening, Saul would have been the the source of the destruction of his own son, just as Jephthah was his daughter. So we see, again, this, this polemic against Saul in the book of Judges, saying, see, don't be like this. We've already seen how this goes. We don't want a man like this. But then on the other hand, 12 chapters later in 1 Samuel, David also makes a rash vow. David had had provided, let's just say, some security details, some security work for a a wicked, rich, selfish man named Nabal. Now, Nabal had a, a wife that we're told in the scriptures was a wise and discerning woman. Her name was Abigail. And David had sent sent messengers to Nabal and said, will you give some provision for me and for my men? And be sure and tell them that I sent you. David says, go in my name. Nabal should have known very well who David was. David had served him. Nabal's response, who's David? I own nothing to him. I will provide nothing to him. And we're told in the text that he's a wicked, worthless fellow. Well, what does David do? David... David ushers in and proclaims this a rash vow, a foolish vow. David says, this is 1 Samuel 25, verse 21, God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So what's David doing? He's calling upon the name of God. That's a vow. And he said, God do to my enemies the same and more so if there's a single male left in all of Nabal's household by the morning. This is a sinful, murderous vow. There's no getting around that. We can't can't apologize for David here. He sinned in doing so, and he he acknowledges that. But we're told that, by contrast, that having made this rash vow, he swore to kill not just Nabal, but he swore to kill every male in the household We're told that Abigail very hurriedly gathers together supplies, brings them to David's men, and then personally speaks to David and makes an appeal to him not to do this thing that he has vowed to do. 
and David relents. In fact, not only does David relent, but David says to Abigail, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me and blessed be your discernment and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from saving myself by my own hand. See, David says, you spared me from greater sin here. You saved me from murder, from bloodshed. Nevertheless, as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, he who has restrained me from harming you unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So again, David's saying, I wasn't just blowing smoke. I meant what I said. I intended to kill them. He goes on. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to your voice and granted your request. What did David do? He renounced an unlawful vow. He was prepared to accept the consequences from Yahweh. He sinned by making this vow, but he didn't compound the sin by fulfilling the unlawful vow. David knew what he had done was sin, and he blessed the name of Yahweh for using Abigail as the instrument for restraining him from fulfilling his own rash vow, making his sin, would have made his sin many times worse. So the correct way to handle an unlawful vow is not to honor the vow. It's to renounce the vow. In fact, in the Westminster, Westminster Larger Catechism, deals with this exact issue. In the question and answer format regarding the third commandment, there's a, there's a question and then an answer of what, what is required of us in the third commandment. You know, in our catechism, we're working through the Keech's catechism. Or the, I'm sorry, the Orthodox catechism. And today, we're, we were on the eighth commandment. Same kind of format. What does it require? What does it forbid? Well, in the larger catechism, as the name implies, the answers are longer, they're, they're more detailed. But listen to this, and I'm only going to read a portion of the answer. What sins are forbidden in the third commandment? Here's the answer. This is the commandment that says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The sins forbidden in the third commandment are the not using of God's name as is required and the abuse of it in an arrogant, vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious, or wicked mentioning or otherwise using his titles, attributes, ordinances, or works by blasphemy, perjury. Now, we're very familiar with that part of the definition of what it means to take the Lord's name in vain, to use his name to curse, to swear. Of course, he's taking his name in vain, but that's not all that is the taking of the name of the Lord in vain. Also, by all sinful cursings, oaths, vows, and lots, there are times that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that you are not to swear an oath by the gold in the temple, for example, or by the hairs on your head. That if you're going to swear, you swear by the name of God and by the name of God only. It is actually to, to, to say, oh, I swear on my mother's grave or something like that. That's a profaning of God's name. An oath can only be taken rightly in the name of God. But also by violating of our oaths and vows, if lawful, is to take the name of the Lord in vain. If we've given a lawful vow to honor and cherish from this day forward, to have and to hold for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and in health, if we profane and trample upon that vow, we are profaning the very name of God. But on the other hand, the catechism answer is if of things unlawful, fulfilling them is a violation of the third commandment. Jephthah violated the third commandment, one, by making an unlawful vow, and two, by fulfilling it. He did not understand the nature of Yahweh. Now, there's another very significant example that we, can, that we can glean from history, even, from the history of the Protestant Reformation. For example, those who were those early reformers, ones like Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, did you know that all of them had taken unlawful vows of celibacy? What do you do? 
you've 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 publicly you're 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 helping reform the church. You're you're calling the the church at Rome to repentance over their false view of of the scriptures and the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of the church and all these things. And all, as you're searching the scriptures, you come to the parts about marriage and say, "Ooh, Rome has this wrong as well." And we were wrong scripturally to take a vow of celibacy. God may indeed give a man, give a woman a particular gift in that area, but to impose that unilaterally is sin. So what did they do? They renounced their vows. Martin Luther published a pamphlet that was widely read, um, caused no small disturbance in Germany, when, uh, in fact, his own wife, Katie von Bora, was previously a reader of, a, of his smuggled pamphlet. She and 12 nuns were smuggled out of a monastery in fish barrels. Martin Luther was able to find why, or find husbands for all of them except one, Katie. And out of pity, he married her. And he learned very quickly that he loved her dearly. But listen, they, they, they decided that their vows of celibacy were unlawful, and the only way to deal rightly with an unlawful vow is to renounce it. That's what Jephthah should have done. Now, a question has been debated throughout history with respect to the Jephthah narrative is, did Jephthah actually offer his daughter up as a burnt offering? Yes. That's what it says. That's the plain meaning of the text. Did he kill his own daughter? The answer is yes. I mean, Brother Kyle read to us in, in the call to worship today from Psalm 106, where it was the practice of Israel, the Israelites at times to even offer their children as sacrifices to pagan idols. The other explanations trying to explain away that fact that you may read in certain commentaries are just not persuasive. And, and the central point of Jephthah serving as a real-life sermon to Israel is, is to display graphically, to display tragically, sorrowfully, what happens when God's people abuse and misuse his holy name. It cost him his own daughter. And so it, it reminds us also, reminds Israel, reminds you and me, that it, it, is, it is not enough that we understand what God has done historically. We can have an accurate understanding of history. We can quote scripture. We can quote accurately our own testimony. If we don't know Yahweh today, if we're not walking before him by his spirit, the history doesn't do us any good, does it? Either the history of all of God's people and his church or our own personal history of redemption, that doesn't do us any good if we don't know Yahweh. Dale Davis said, I have a problem with those who claim Jephthah would never have sacrificed his daughter because that would have been against Yahweh's law. They, those who claim this, automatically assume that Jephthah was consistent in what he knew. But how do we know that Jephthah was consistently consistent? Is it not just as conceivable that in spite of what knowledge he had, he convinced himself that such a sacrifice, given the emergency, might not only be entirely proper, but also deeply pious? See, as I mentioned last week, when, when, we, when we live among the foreigners, we begin to think like foreigners. When we worship idols, we begin to think like idolaters. Jephthah had so warped his mind in his idolatry that he began to think this was, this was the right thing to do. This was the pious thing to do. This was the holy thing to do. If we're not immersing ourselves in the word of God, studying faithfully in and among his people, the word of God, we can easily be conformed to the world around us and begin to convince ourselves that something is, is actually a holy thing, a righteous thing, a right thing to do, and it is not. Jephthah made a tragic appeal to the name of Yahweh, and, and as a, this real-life, one-man sermon, Jephthah teaches us that accurately knowing God's, God's history, his redemptive activity is, is not enough if we don't know by faith Yahweh himself. We must know Yahweh. We must cling to him. We must hold tight to him. There is, there is one more lesson that we learn here from Jephthah. And this is with his, we get into chapter 12 now, with his dealings with the men of Ephraim. And there's a deadly appeal to pride. Here in this one-man sermon, we have this great 
right, accurate appeal to history, we have this tragic appeal to the name of God, a false view of the name of God. And now, a deadly appeal to pride. And it's, and it's both Jephthah and Ephraim are caught up in their pride, respectively. Having seen this true appeal to history, and seeing this, this tragic appeal to God's name, we see now that Jephthah and the Ephraimites both make a deadly appeal to their own pride. Look at verse 12. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Now, that sounds like a good brotherly response, doesn't it? Oh, praise the Lord that he has delivered you from your enemies, except that you didn't include us, so now we're going to take take vengeance upon you and burn your house down upon you. See, the, the, the movement in the story is from west to east. As they cross over the Jordan, move into this disputed territory, the Ephraimites are still on the west side of the Jordan. Well, they take up arms, cross over the Jordan again, and they confront Jephthah. And, and we, see the, we saw them do the very same thing with Gideon, didn't we? As soon as the battle is over, there are victory songs, and immediately, here's the Ephraimites. Hey, why didn't you call us? We're somebody. We, we, we are not just somebody, we are the somebodies, and we ought to be front and center of anything that goes on around here. You know that guy? You know that lady? Are you that guy? Are you that lady? That says, I've got to be involved. I mean, if there's something going on, especially something successful, I mean, I should be there, because it's, it's me, right? This, this, was a, this was a persistent character flaw among the Ephraimites. Uh, Dale Davis kind of quips. He said they were they were not even content to argue over about who was over the left side of the side of the king or the the left of the of the throne and the right of the throne. They wanted to be on the throne. And just they'd done to Gideon. They wait till the victory is already secure. Then they seek out and find fault with Israel's leader for not including them as they thought after the fact. They should have been included. Now, Jephthah responds very quickly, well, here's the problem, guys. I did, and you wouldn't come. I did call upon you, and you wouldn't come and help me. So I took it upon myself. Yes, I crossed over the Jordan, and yes, the Lord gave the Ammonites into my hand, not yours. Now, when they did this to Gideon, Gideon sort of parlayed them with words, through flattery and sort of political speech, he convinced them to back down. Well, Jephthah was in no such mood. So Jephthah responded with a call to arms to the Gileadites to attack and kill his own countrymen. Ephraim was wrong. Again, the pride of Ephraim was front and center here. This was wrong. But Jephthah equally, in his own pride, said, I'm not going to take this from you both metaphorically and literally, I'm going to whip you. And he did. The Ephraimite pride caused them to exalt themselves. They wanted to be the center of attention. They refused simply to rejoice with their kinsmen for God's great victory. But Jephthah added to that, to their sin, his own sin of pride. He gathers the men of Gilead to make war against his own countrymen. So what they do is they capture the crossings, the, the, the fords, which would be the, the low points in the river, the crossing points of the Jordan River. They captured those so that all the Ephraimites who had crossed over are now trapped. And what, what we see here is that there was, apparently the Ephraimites had also made some, some ethnic or racial sores against the Gideonites, I'm the Gileadites, I'm sorry. And so having captured the places at the Jordan, Jephthah has ordered the people, has ordered the Gileadites to kill the Ephraimites. So the Ephraimites would then pretend, oh, we're, we're a Reubenite. We just kind of were on the wrong side of the river. We need to get back over on the west side. Okay, say Shibboleth. And they couldn't say it. So basically they adopted a password, and, and an ethnic password. There were certain sounds that they couldn't say. You've seen this before. If you if you're, if you travel to the to the northeast, 
you travel to the Northwest, you travel to way out in East Texas or Southern Alabama, you, we talk differently, don't we? And so if you're here in Texas and someone comes up and says, you know, park the car, well, you know they're not from here. You say, say car, you can't. And, and so that's what they took advantage of, was something in their, their linguistic thing. They could not say the H sound. So instead of shibboleth, they would always say sibboleth. But it wasn't a funny scene. We can laugh at it, but it wasn't a funny scene. Here's a man coming in fear for his life, a countryman, a kinsman. And they'd put a sword to his neck and say, shibboleth, say it. Sibboleth. And they killed him. 42,000 kinsmen they murdered. Jephthah is a sermon for Israel. This is what happens when you neglect and profane the name of Yahweh. This is what happens when pridefully you seek to contend against each other and you adopt this sectarian tribal mindset. This is your end. This is your destruction. This is what will come upon you. And again, Judges is offered up to the people of God during the time of David. You read through the books of 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. The Civil War motif is, is all over the place in those books because the people of God ignored the repeated warnings. They didn't listen to the sermon that was Jephthah. There's a warning to all of Israel against the sin of prideful sectarianism. And again, civil war becomes a, a prominent theme from this place on in the book of Judges. But it also should, should cause us to ask ourselves honestly, what are your shibboleths? What, what are those things that you do or think or say to other brothers and sisters in Christ and say, if you don't do it like I do it, you're not of, you're not of me. You're not like me. You don't belong to the same God to whom I belong. What do we demand of a brother or sister that they say or do in order, in our mind, and our heart, to count them a true Christian? To count them as a kinsman? I mean, we, we certainly will have our, our doctrinal differences with other true Christians. And, we, and, and we, there's nothing wrong with articulating those differences and, and even contending for them. But that's a different thing to say this is not my brother or not my sister because they believe something different about this particular point or that particular point of doctrine. Or to treat them harshly or to treat them badly or to treat them uncharitably because we don't believe exactly the same. In what ways does our pride separate us from true brothers and sisters or cause us to treat them poorly? How should Israel have responded to this sermon that is Jephthah? How should they have responded? Well, they should have responded with repentance towards God and faith in, in the promises that he had given to them. They should have responded with, with repentance from their idolatry and repentance from their failure to know Yahweh as he has been truly revealed to them. They should have responded in repentance from their, their sectarian pride and their tribal rivalry. They should have unified themselves together under the covenant of God, their true judge and deliverer. Well, how do we respond to the sermon that is Jephthah? How do we respond to this real-life sermon? Repentance towards God. According to even greater light that he has given to us. We have the one Emmanuel, God in the flesh, God with us, who has come. We have the light of the apostolic truth that the Spirit of God has given to his people that says now through Christ there is no longer two men but one. The wall of separation has been broken down. Jew and Gentile even have been united together in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That all who by faith belong to Christ are one family, one brotherhood, one nation, one people, one holy people. We ought to seek the Lord's help to cleanse our minds from pagan ways of thinking. See, that's, that's one of the, the, the threads that weaves through the life of Jephthah, is he thought like a pagan. 
We, we ought to ask the Lord. We ought to ask the Spirit of God to search us and see, is there any wicked way in us? I think this is what Paul, part of what Paul means in Romans 12 when he says that you are not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do you know that it's our default position to think like pagans? I mean, we, it's the air we breathe. And, and, and our minds have to be reshaped and renewed by the Spirit working through His Word so that we think like Christians. We begin to think God's thoughts after Him. We no longer think we have to appease God or manipulate God or that we can oblige God to do what we want. That we come to God by means of, of faith, not by an effort to control Him, to guide Him, to manipulate Him. We seek to know Yahweh as He really is, not merely knowledge about Him, but to know Him. To know His character, to know His mercy, to know His goodness, to know His steadfast love and faithfulness. We ought to draw near to Him through Christ. We ought to learn to think as He thinks in, in Christ's high priestly prayer that he offers up right before he is arrested and betrayed. In John 17, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Christ, and he has prayed this for you. This was his prayer two millennia ago for you, but it's also his prayer as he continually makes intercession for you. As if as at this very moment, as he intercedes for you, he is praying that you may know the only true God through Jesus that he has sent. So for any of those here today who, who do not know God by faith in Jesus Christ, who've never been united to him by faith, who know something of the history of his redemption, may, I mean, you may be able to spout off the, the Sunday school stories and know what, what's happened. You can recall the things that have happened in the scriptures, but you don't know Yahweh. You've never been united to him by faith in his son. Then today, may the Lord give you light, not to harden your heart, but to respond in faith and repentance. To, 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 to see and to hear the sermon of Jephthah. And say, this is me. I think like a pagan. I think I can manipulate God. I think I can steer God to do what I want. I need to forsake that. I need to turn from that. I need to believe that he will save me. He will deliver me. That he delights to show mercy. And those of us who have walked with Christ, will we, will we see our, our own faults exposed in the life of Jephthah? Will we see those, those ways that still remain in us? Don't we all want to control things? I mean, I, I'm a charter member, a card-carrying member of Control Freaks Anonymous. And, and, and I can testify to you that it's, 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 it's in my nature to want to control things. And I'm deceiving myself if I think that that doesn't also include me wanting to control God. Perhaps that's true of you too. Well, we forsake that and say, well, you, you are in charge here. It is you that I trust, not me. Will, will you help me to turn away from the ways that I seek to manipulate circumstances and people so that I get what I want rather than trusting that you've provided all that I need, provided all that I could ever need in Christ? Jephthah rightly testified that it would be God who judges between him and the king of Ammon. He rightly testified that there is one sovereign judge of all the earth to whom we will all give an account. Do you know that judge? Do you know the Lord Jesus who's been appointed the judge of all men? As we come to the time of, of observing the Lord's Supper together, we, we know that the scriptures tell us plainly that, our, that every time we eat and drink, we testify together that the Lord is coming again. We testify of his death until he returns. And on the day he returns, he's going to come in judgment. We're as we eat and drink, we're testifying to that fact. We are proclaiming that fact to one another and to a watching world. That God's judgment is surely going to come. We believe in that. Will we take a comfort in that? We actually find joy in that fact that he's going to return and make all things new. Let's pray and prepare ourselves for the supper. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you, that you have made yourself known to us. That we are not left merely trying to interpret 
with our own carnal minds your providential dealings in history, but you have made yourself known, you've spoken plainly to us your, your purposes. What Paul called the full counsel of your word, the full purpose of your redemptive work among men. And help us to, to make the connections in our own mind between the life of Jephthah, a man that your word says was a man of faith. Help us to reconcile in our own minds what true faith looks like. To exercise true faith in our own minds towards Christ. Repentance through him towards God. And that you would increase our, our faith, increase our ability to hold fast uh, to these precious promises, believing that you are the one holding fast to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.